Hello, this episode that you're about to hear was originally released as a Patreon bonus episode. Just wanted to explain that to you before you hear it, because at the beginning you'll hear me talking about the new Patreon and all this sort of stuff, um, which won't make sense if I hadn't have told you that, so that's why. I The reason I am doing this is, well, two reasons I'm doing this. One, I will be having a baby either next week or this week, depending on when you're hearing this. And there's a decent chance that's going to delay me sort of working on the podcast for a while and getting out the next episode. So I want to put something up for you to listen to. So, um, yeah, I I thought, especially as I had quite a few people contribute to this one, I thought it'd be nice for to have um, more people hear them for their you know, effort that they put into this. So I thought this was a good one to pick out for you all to hear. Um, I'm not going to be doing this as a regular thing. I'm not going to be putting up any more Patreon episodes, um, just this one. Um, and yeah, as I decided to put something up to sort of tide you over while I'm having um, the baby, I thought it would also be a nice opportunity to just give you uh, an idea of the, the stuff that I am doing on the Patreon, the fact that there is a Patreon with more episodes that you can hear. So that's at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. That is where this episode originally appeared. And that's where you can also find episodes on um, Not Tonight, um, Cowboy Bebop. I've been working my way through that. Psycho Pass, I've been making, working my way through that TV series as well. I've done an episode on the concept of estrangement. I've done an episode on conspiracy theory. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. I've started working my way through Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff over there and I continue um, to release episodes there. So yeah, it'd be cool if you could check that out. But yeah, that's all I want to say. I want to explain to you um, why you'll hear me going on about a new patron at the beginning and explain why this is going up. And uh, yeah, so I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to the first bonus episode of Utopian Horizons. Obviously I'm recording this before I've made the changes to the Patreon so I have no idea uh, how many, if any of you have signed up um, to listen to this, I hope some of you have um, and thank you very much for doing so uh, if you have done. Um, this episode is a bit different to anything you would have heard on the feed up until this point. It's about utopia and music and what I've done is I've invited on a number of contributors to pick a song about utopia or dystopia or that allows them to talk about a particular aspect of um, utopia and uh, invited them to talk about that song. So I've invited on Adam Roberts, who's been on the podcast before, to talk about H.G. Wells' Modern Utopia. Um, he's a science fiction writer you might be familiar with through novels like uh, Jack Glass, um, Yellow Blue Tibia, The Real Town Murders. I've got Anna McFarlane, who's been on the podcast twice, to talk about Neuromancer and Strange Days. I've got David Bell, who hasn't been on the podcast before, but uh, I think I might try and convince him to come on for a, a normal episode as well. Um, I've got Sean McTiernan, who is from the All Units podcast. He's also been on twice to talk about Nemesis and Kamikaze 89. And I've got 
Darren Anderson, who was on the podcast, uh, talk on the Cities and Architecture episode, who you might know through his fantastic book, Imagine Me Cities. And I've also got Fatima Vieira, who was on the first episode of the podcast, uh, An Introduction to Utopia. So you'll be hearing some bits of music and these guests talking about those pieces of music. And uh, I'll pop up at some point in the podcast to talk about a song as well. Uh, again, one more time, thank you very much for supporting me on Patreon. Um, but I'll leave you now with my guests. <laughs> Hi, I'm Adam Roberts. I'm a science fiction writer and a critic, and I'd like to talk about the Kinks single Ape Man, which was released in 1970 and appears on the album Lola vs. the Power Man and the Money Go Round. And it might seem odd to discuss this particular song on a podcast devoted to utopian writing, utopian fiction. But I would argue that one of the things that happens to utopia in the 1960s and the 1970s especially, is that it becomes pastoralized. It becomes increasingly located in rural spaces. That all those gleaming high-tech futuristic cities that we found in early 20th century utopias, by novels by H.G. Wells and so on, are replaced in this period by visions of returning to nature and making things natural again. It's the birth of the environmentalist and green movement. It's the vogue for Tolkien's rural idyls. There's a new kind of pastoral at work, and that's what this song clearly is. It's symptomatic, I think, of an important shift in the logic of pastoral, because it's a song that says it's no longer enough simply to leave the city and go to the countryside, that we have to leave civilization altogether and find a completely new primitivist environment. Uh, the, so civilization has become overpopulation and inflation and starvation and crazy politicians <clears throat> so that we don't feel safe in this world anymore. And the threat of nuclear war, nuclear war is a great uh, overshadowing force in 60s and 70s culture, means that this, the speaker, the singer of the song, simply wants to retreat, to go back to the jungle, to take off his clothes, uh, swing up and down in the coconut tree and live a life of what he called luxury like an ape man. It's a beguiling song. It's a wonderful song, technically speaking. It's from Davis's, Ray Davis's great period of songwriting when he's simply in charge of his instrument uh, that he writes this, this short, beautifully focused song that um, is carried along on this beautiful lilting melody this uh, very catchy uh, theme that runs through the chorus and we can identify with the the dream that the song is selling us and it fits form to its mode because much as i love pop music and i love pop music very dearly i listen to it all the time i have to accept that pop as an art form is primitivist in comparison with lots of other art forms that it can do some things very well but it, it can't really do nuance and sophistication and those qualities that people find pretentious if you try and embody them in a pop song. And that works for this because this is a song about finding a more primitivist mode of life. But, ah, but it has its downside as well. 
And the downside is what this song implies about racial representation, because there's simply no getting around the fact that comparing black people to monkeys and apes is a racial libel of long standing. That pop music itself, of course, grows out of African and more specifically African American musical cultures of blues and rhythm and jazz and soul that are co-opted after the Second World War by a whole range of largely white artists who go on to make enormous sums of money and accrue global fame in the manner of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and indeed the Kings on taking this black form of art in inverted commas and twisting it round to their white perceptions. Now there is something, let's say, dodgy about Ray Davis writing a song using a deliberately a calypso rhythm to render that song, talking about abandoning his civilization and reverting to a more primitive mode of life as an ape man. There's something that is racially suspect about that, which I think is, it's unget-aroundable. Um, when I was a, a kid, and this song was often played on the radio, it didn't occur to me, when I became a man, and I put away childish things, it dawned on me. And ever since that moment, it's not possible to see this song in the same way. Now, there are lots of things. It's a large and a complex question as to how representations of race intersect with representations of utopia. And my time is up, so I can't get into that, although I would quite like to. But I insist, nonetheless, I think, that in its small, jewel-like but flawed precision this song is managing to articulate for good and ill quite a lot of that direction This is Dr Anna McFarlane of the University of Glasgow. I research pregnancy and science fiction and today I've chosen to speak about a song that is very close to my heart, The Tale of the Giant Stone Eater by the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. Uh, the Sensational Alex Harvey Band are a Scottish band, they're Glaswegian, from that were performing in the 1970s. And they have rock and roll influences, but they also have theatrical influences. And if you think of something like Cabaret, they were trying to bring a more kind of visual aesthetic to their live shows as well. So they're quite an interesting band that aren't really remembered that much today, um, especially amongst younger people. They're not celebrated in the way that I think that they maybe should be. So that's partly why I've chosen Tale of the Giant Stone Eater. So what is this song? It's about a stone eater, or you, and we might envisage this as a big digger, as it's as shown on the front of their album cover. It's from an album called Tomorrow Belongs to Me, and the cover is in a comic book style, showing this digger eating up the rocks of a desolate landscape with dying trees, and there's a vicious head of a brontosaurus. I know they're supposed to be herbivores, but this is a very viciously portrayed brontosaurus that just looms out of the landscape and seems to almost be fighting the digger. 
And the reason for these representations is that Alex Harvey, the leader of the band, he was a big fan of comic books and believed that comic books and music and other types of visual art could all be used together to uh, portray a message. So the tale of the giant stone eater starts off as if someone is telling a tale to a group of children and it, I like to imagine this in a post-apocalyptic landscape so the earth has been destroyed and someone's gathering the children around the fire to tell them how the world was destroyed in a way that they're going to understand but very quickly the song changes and it's not a simple childlike portrayal anymore it becomes very uh, visceral it becomes very aggressive in a way that you might think you would have to be aggressive in order to describe the end of the world. Uh, So Alex Harvey uses surreal imagery and uses a lot of alliteration to bring up these images that altogether describe a world where the stone eater and what it represents, capitalism, eco-catastrophe and the pillaging of the earth for its resources... It's successfully destroyed the world and this voice is trying to get across the violence of that and how that's come about. Um, One of the things that's really emphasised throughout the song is the fact that the earth itself and the sedimentation of those different layers could be seen to be the culture and the history of the earth, something that should be preserved and shouldn't have a price put on it. So there's lines such as, footprints of vikings trapped on a sonic tape recorder it's almost an idea like the earth is a vinyl record and there's these um historic events that are trapped within its sedimentation that are then just being destroyed by the stone eater for the uh pursuit of profit and that's repeated again later in the song when alex sings each layer a civilization by your own layer once again, that idea that there's culture and there's history that's sedimented into this earth that we're living on, and that should be respected. Instead, capitalism's allowing people to go ahead and, and buy and destroy these layers of earth that we live on. And one of the interesting things about the way that he does this is that he uses this Glaswegian accent, which, as we know, it's rare for people in the UK to use regional accents when they're singing rock music. Often people will adopt this fake American accent. Uh, He uses his Glaswegian accent to great effect here, I think, alongside that biting alliteration. So it really cuts through and there's a real violence and aggression to the way that he gets this across. So rather than a utopian song, this is really a dystopia that we're seeing here. But as we know from listening to other episodes of the podcast and in general, uh, dystopia is a great way to make us think about utopia. Alex Harvey did have some ideas about how he might go about portraying a utopia within his music. He had a comic book style character called Vambo from the land of Vibrania, who was a street kid, but would also respect the environment. One of his songs says, uh, Vambo never vandal be, Vambo never cut down tree. And I think that he had an intention to write an, a concept album based on Vambo that might have given us a more utopian idea of how we could move away from the future depicted in the tale of the giant stone eater. But sadly, that never materialised and Alex ended up dying at quite a young age after the split of the band. 
So we won't see the the Vambo album, but hopefully hearing songs like The Tale of the Giant Stone Eater could help us to imagine what an alternative utopia might be that might respect and protect the environment that in which we find ourselves. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, don't give so up. So the song I have chosen to talk about is Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley and the Wailers. It's pretty on the nose in terms of picking a song about, uh, you know, Utopia. I could have picked something a bit uh, cleverer than this, but hey, this is what I've gone for. So, I mean, the reason I might think of this as a Utopian song is it's pretty obvious. It's a song which constantly repeats, get up, stand up, stand up for your right. So, yeah, again, pretty on the nose. But I think um, in terms of music, thinking about music, uh, pop music or music that breaks free. Obviously, this is a reggae song, but this is a song an artist that broke through into the mainstream and I don't think you often hear um, musicians in that space making like explicitly political calls obviously that's something that happens from time to time uh, I think there's something um, valuable in that I don't know why I'm speaking there as if I have any idea what's going on in popular music or culture today um, I don't but anyway what I was more interested in talking about this song really was first of all I suppose you called uh, the religious aspect or so from what I understand reading on the internet Bob Marley uh, was religious and I used to be somebody who thought of religion as being like inherently bad especially sort of from a political view and it's still very easy to hold that opinion um, particularly I don't know if you're thinking about America and the strong attachment that uh, the religious right holds over over politics and the kind of conversely the kind of political ideology that holds sway over um, over a lot of Christianity in America now that's not to say that religion on the contrary religion is inherently good or uh or that has no problems or anything like that but there is also um strong uh traditions of uh religious of political resistance in religion obviously thinking back to the the civil rights movement and the important community role that the church played in um organizing that political resistance so this is a song that is making is taking like a stance against religion uh, as a kind of apolitical or anti-political device. So there's a bit there's a bit in there where he's talking about people thinking that God is going to come from the sky and kind of make every, everything feel great. And obviously, thinking about that, religion is like an apolitical thing. There's this idea that you will achieve, uh, you know, you'll go to heaven in the afterlife, which, I mean, if you really believe that, can be like um, a neutralising thing. Like, you just have to, like, follow rules and, like you know do what the institution of the of the church tells you to do and um then you know you'll get what's coming to you afterwards but in this song bob Marley's saying if you know what life is worth you look for yours on earth so this is about about making um utopian call of not looking utopian and i guess um a religious call although for me i would just think of it as a utopian one of not thinking of of heaven or um, the end goal of religion, I guess, as being something that comes 
um, after life. This is something that you need to make here and now. You need to stand up for yourself. So this is making explicitly political and utopian cool and saying, you know, God is not going to come and fix everything for you. We need to make heaven on earth. We need to make utopia on earth. So yeah, I think, you know, as a thinking about utopia, taking stepping back from sort of religious aspect, I guess, we can still often think of utopia as um, something for the future. A lot of the utopias that I talk about on this podcast are from science fiction, which obviously tend to be set in the future. So utopia is something which is coming, which will be realised later. And I think it's important to think of utopianism more as um, a praxis, I guess, as uh, something which we need to be enacting, which we need to be trying creating, trying to create in here and now. And that's what this song is about. This is about constantly saying, see the light, we need to get up, stand up, we need to stand up for our rights, we need to do it in the here and now. We can't expect anyone else to come and save us. We can't be sort of looking towards a future that we just think will inevitably become as our salvation. We have to do it ourselves. We have the power. And it's um you know, it's a collective call. It's saying now we see the light, we're gonna we are gonna stand up for our rights. So it's making that uh making that statement to us as a collective and encouraging us to to uh enact utopianism now. And um yeah, that's uh I think all I wanted to say about this song. I will leave you now with David Bell. So the piece of music that I'm talking about is one that I don't actually like. Uh, it's the first side of the 1961 album by the Ornette Coleman Double Quartet, Free Jazz, A Collective Improvisation. Uh, and it's quite important that I don't like it. Uh, for the argument that I'm going to make here, and I'll I'll come on to why uh, in a little while. Now, it's in many ways a kind of archetypal work of free jazz or free improvisation. Um, There's a loose structure, but really musicians are kind of imminently imminently creating the music in the moment in response to each other, in response to the kind of capacities of their instruments, their musical abilities, and so on. So they're not trying to kind of realise a score or a predetermined structure. Uh, They're making something negotiating something new together collectively. And this process is often described both by musicians and critics as a utopian practice. Um, and this is something that's kind of fascinated me for a long time, even from, from before I really worked on on theorising utopia. Because my own experience, on the one hand, is that yes, musical improvisation can be a utopian experience in which you discover new capacities and powers in negotiation with other people. And yet, of course, this kind of ostensibly non-hierarchical structure that doesn't have a preconceived idea of what it's trying to realise seems a long way from the kind of colloquial understandings of utopia um, as a social system oriented to a kind of blueprint of perfection, um, which is deeply hierarchical uh, and might perhaps correspond better to something like the symphony orchestra, where the score is often held to be the kind of perfected version of the music and the musicians are trying to Uh, bring this perfection to life through a very strictly hierarchical social structure. So I guess the kind of question that's animated a lot of my work is what it might mean to think about and to describe musical improvisation as a utopian practice um, and to think about what the concept of utopia or how the concept of utopia needs to change uh, or, or be changed by this encounter with musical improvisation. 
So of course, Utopia is the good place that's no place. I won't talk about place too much here, but I guess suffice to say that I think it's possible to think about the social relations of musicians and the kind of space in which they're in taken together as a place. Places are produced by the relations uh, or places are produced by relations that, that kind of take place at a particular uh, location and time. Um, so the good then for me, uh, I kind of draw on Jules Deleuze's reading of Spinoza to argue that something is good or things are good or relations are good if they increase the capacity of bodies, um, so that might be human bodies, but it might be non-human bodies, uh, to affect and be affected, or we might say to express their power, but also to be responsive to powers that are expressed upon them. So here, power is not a kind of zero-sum game in which one person's uh, an increase in one person's power necessarily diminishes the power of everyone else. Rather, uh, when relations are good, it, it's a kind of mutually effective, uh, mutually empowering act. So, I think. Uh, musical improvisation is a good example of this and we can hear this in free jazz uh, when one musician plays something rather than limit the power of the other musicians it opens up a space for them to respond and the collective improvisation takes place and unfolds imminently so Ornette Coleman playing a saxophone uh, creates a space for uh, let's say uh, Charlie Hayden the bassist to respond and then the drummer will respond to that, the, the clarinetist and Freddie Hubbard on his trumpet and so on. And they respond to each other, and of course not just to the, to the human musicians, but to the sounds of the space, to the instruments they're playing, and so on. So all those different bodies interacting, increasing the capacity of each other to affect and be affected, opening up new spaces for exploration. And for me, those new spaces for exploration are the kind of freedom of free jazz or free improvisation. Uh, what the science fiction scholar Darko Suvin calls the possibility of something new and truly unexpected coming about. Uh, and Ornette Coleman himself in the line of notes to another album, Change of the Century, uh, talks about musicians having a complete freedom, but one that is at all times dependent upon group effort and the rapport established between them. So it's not a freedom from uh, others, it's a freedom to create with others that opens up uh, new unexpected horizons. And for me that's really a kind of uh, the stuff of utopianism. But of course, utopia needs to say no too. It needs to say no to an intolerable present. Um, and I think uh, Coleman's exemplary here, he was very much embedded in what we might call the black radical tradition, um, opposed to all forms of white supremacy, to police violence, to state brutality, uh, and, and to the kind of myriad forms of anti-blackness that, that uh, he experienced uh, as a black man living in the United States of America at the time he did. And of course, we we would say that he would, he would still experience those sadly today where he uh, still alive. So this isn't just a celebratory music or a music that's creating something new, it's also a music that, that necessarily, I think, says no to the world as it is. It knows that the kind of social relations it embodies or prefigures can only be expanded if the world as it exists is destroyed, I think. Um, and Coleman's legacy can be seen in, in both music but also in, in the kind of writers in the black radical tradition, so people like Fred Moten, who I think is one of the most exciting theorists at the moment, thinking about how we might uh, live differently and live better, um, but never settling for easy answers. So why then have I picked a piece of music uh, that I don't like? Because there's plenty of free jazz and indeed plenty of Ornette Coleman that I do like. Well, my claim here is that perhaps this is all the more utopian for being illegible to me. When I hear it, I hear kind of chaotic, meaningless, formless noise. Uh, and in that, I'm perhaps like the white critics that George Lewis criticises in his incredible book about uh, the American Association, for, sorry, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians uh, for improvising kind of collective based around Chicago. 
Um, and he says that a lot of white critics of uh, black art, both sonic art and, and visual art, have criticised it for being you know, noisy. They, they can't impose any meaning on it. It's just chaos, they say. And what Lewis says is actually this is, these are forms of black sociality that are illegible to white critics. And maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe I don't recognise, I can't hear the sociality in this precisely because it's not for people like me. And maybe Utopia is a world that won't be for people like me. It'll be a world for people who uh, aren't white, aren't middle class, aren't cissexual. Um, people who historically have been oppressed and in which they can find the freedom to flourish uh, and unfold and create a world uh, that they want to live in. Not so much the shape of jazz to come, but the shape of utopia to come. Hello, my name is Sean. My favourite band in the world are No Means No. Um, they have been my favourite band for over half of my life. They were uh, around for 37 years. I can't see myself changing my opinion anytime soon. And they have a particular way with dystopia in their lyrics. So I should tell you that No Means No were formed in uh, British Columbia, kind of Victoria, and then Vancouver in 19... 19- 79 I want to say yeah 1979 and uh, they started off as a kind of a drum and bass duo of just uh, John Wright playing the drums and his older brother Rob Wright playing the bass um, and singing they both take care of vocal duties as things go on they also added Andy Kerr uh, the best guitarist rock music has ever produced the punk let's say punk music has ever produced um Andy Kerr's guitar is a realisation of what stuff like Gang of Four and even Steve Albini with Big Black were gesturing at in terms of pure, manipulating pure noise and creating different directions the guitar can go in. He was able to do this because the Brothers Wright had created such a strong, locked-in kind of lead, almost, uh, drum and drums and bass guitar combo that they were able to put a, no problem put together a full album of just that and vocals. So eventually Andy Kerr left um, and Tom Holliston, who was in the showbiz giants joined and uh, they had another drummer, Ken Kempster, but they're fantastic. Uh, no means no, or a kind of an idiosyncratic people described them as like hardcore jazz, but that's just what they say when there is distorted guitars and busy bass lines. Very difficult band to kind of, um, knocked down to one genre but i I would say post hardcore in a way that very different to what it means now but um they ended up bringing in a lot of folk again not not an acoustic guitar sense but mostly in the kind of vocal quality partially because both brothers uh tended to sing in the kind of harmony that only really brothers can achieve and uh yeah they're really interesting band explore a lot of different ideas um the negative being within the positive and the kind of duality well not duality but they're no means no in their name they ended up no means nothing and they they everything containing the inverse of itself um it all sounds kind of silly when you say it, like they're they're two brothers in the band are called right their biggest album is called wrong you get the idea what i do like about no means no is they do gesture at this kind of sci-fi storytelling um or this kind of dystopian storytelling in a very unique way so they're not steampunks you know what i mean like i think a lot of time when people talk about they're either steampunks or it's kind of metal and it's very descriptive but what no means no tend to do is tap into this sort of 
the kind of energy, the kind of gesturing at dystopia and that you would get in, say, radio plays or something like that. Now, the, the lyrics are off, obviously sung as well as screamed, but I'll give you an example. There's a song called Lost, um, which the key line is, I got lost, that's what happened to you, now I'm lost too. But uh, faced with several choices, all of them wrong, snap out of what I said, tell myself, stop singing the same old song. So, you know, it starts off and you kind of think like, oh, okay, you know, this is just a, a, you know, whatever fucking song about emotions. But then they'll say the all clear sounds, but the streets are deserted. We sit in shelters with our eyes averted. I searched out for your face among all those who, who's, who remained, but they were all the same. I wanted it all. Now I find I'm lost. You screamed that I sold out, you said, that there had to be something I could do. I'm just trying to hold on, I said, but when you were gone, what could I hold on to? So they bring in this idea of almost uh, sort of totalitarian states or different states of being um, in a very subtle way. They introduce uh, Rob Wright, I think, who would be mainly responsible for the lyrics of both songs I'm talking about, introduces these ideas... um, where they could be metaphor, but there it, there does tend to be that little hint that this is this kind of alienation taps into this sort of totalitarian government or taps into this to like this sense of an altered society, this sense of how dystopic things could get. Um, the key line, um, I mean, that you know, it, it goes very metaphorical later on in Lost, where he says, "To this land I was driven, to the land of the misgiven." to the land of false starts, to the land of missing parts. You know, that seems, again, to, maybe it's more just, you know, uh, metaphorical. But then, at the end, and this is this is one of the great moments, I think, in terms of a song moving from cool things to say to feeling like an actual place. The, the last verse of Lost, by no means no, is I go to work every day, come home and watch the news. What chance do we have, I think, just us two? In the occupied zone, there's nowhere to hide. Misses with eyes search for all to survive. I couldn't get through in my house till I called and called and called. So, there's an element to no means no songs where, again, that feeling of this being both a dystopic reality, but also extremely grounded. Like, they play with horror and fantasy as well. I hate when fucking people say people play with things, but they use horror and fantasy as well. And like the tower or something like that. Like they have all these songs that evoke almost folk tales. Like the story must be told is another song that they have that could almost be like a, almost like a Grimm's, not Grimm's fairy tale, but something like that. But in this, they mix that very, very real lived experience of just not getting somebody to be able to pick up the phone and take it into this in the occupied zone. There's nowhere to hide. But it doesn't sound to me, I mean, this is the thing. This is my favorite band. So maybe this sounds ridiculous to you. But to me, these details that they put into some of their songs, the gesture at a larger, emptier earth, just fascinates me all the time. Um, the most obvious example, I guess, of a dystopic reality put forward in a No Means No song would be Dark Ages. Um, Dark Ages is, um, we live here in the Dark Ages, haven't seen some daylight for what seems ages. All the information is locked far beyond, locked in circuits and bathed in silicone. So I guess Dark Ages is basically about what will, it's almost like an imagined reality, you know, um, it can be interpreted as, as imagined reality where the Dark Ages has happened and you know, all the information is there on computers, but we can't access it. But really, it's just about the here and now. Like all good sci-fi, like all good anything, no means no is talking about, the lyrics are talking about now. 
Like, they used to play the song dedicated to whatever American president was currently in office for a very specific reason. Um, we're fast asleep and our dreams are seething in and, in and though all is we are still breathing. But it's him in the dark. He makes me null and void. It's him in the dark. I think I'm paranoid. A world of half-truths. What goes unspoken. Lines of communication are stripped and broken. And the dark is cold with hands freezing. But this deep freeze seems strangely pleasing. Now, what I love about But This Deep Freeze Seems Strangely Pleasing as a line in the song Dark Ages is it is sung by someone else. It is sung by John Wright. The rest of the song... No, sorry. Invert invert that. The song is mostly sung by the drummer, John Wright. Uh, Andy Kerr, I think, says, But This Deep, deep freeze, freeze Seems Strangely Pleasing. That is really indicative to me of how No Means No Sound works with these dystopic ideas, right? Because on the album, Small Parts Isolated and Destroyed, which that song would have come from, the production is very cold in a sort of an almost British post-punk way. And the over the kind of overdubs feel very artificial and it feels like a very an attempt to make a recorded experience. Kind of there's a sort of a radio effect on on that intruded lyric. But when performed live and all of the canonical versions of the songs on their album Small Parts Isolated and Destroyed appear on the live album Live and Cuddly, which is my favourite album. I think probably my favourite album of all time is their live album Live and Cuddly. Because all of this, kind of the theatre of this stuff gets stripped away and it's just urgency. So when Andy Kerr screams, but this deep freeze seems strangely pleasing on top, of what's being sung, it loses that remove, and and a lot of the songs, and they you know they lose that remove or that effect, and it's much much more impactful when it's sung like that. Far from losing that kind of theatricality, it underlines how their sound, this mechanical throbbing drum and bass, this exacting, really does feel like interlocking gears, drum and bass line, and this guitar that most of the time is just whales like sonic kind of um. Like Sonicscapes in some sort of uh, like BBC Radiophonic workshop stuff, like just just unbelievable, but hugely rhythmic as well. It shows how much that sound links up with these topics of these kind of dystopic realities of this, you know, like zone tripper, like sci-fi world. Like you could feel the sky go and and a color it shouldn't be. You can feel it in this sound. How this sounds work. You can feel that mechanical presence that underlines so much like quote-unquote post-apocalyptic or dystopic reality um later on in dark ages but the, the power triplers receive facelifts button pushers all work night shifts the misdemeanor seems so ghastly while the media punch out is so lasting eastern comrades find out much too late and free men are free to subjugate un- under the mega shadow under under nine to five still at self-extinction that keeps us alive like i know that sounds cheesy to you guy who likes arcade fire or whatever the fuck but to me this was incredible when i was a kid to have something that it was this political while being this literary and not fucking steampunk or something awful like that not overdone not somebody describing a fucking story to, well it is somebody describing a story but not in a flowery way um under the mega shadow under the nine to five is something i think about all the time we're living in the dark ages I don't know, go to sleep are, are the last lines. And they sing those over each other and the feeling of them all eventually, all because th- all three of the members of the band, whenever there's been three members of the band, no matter which three members, all sing, 
at various points and when they all link up and sing go to sleep it is haunting and it is again that sense you know you feel that guitar is making noises it's a 2000 ad guitar tone the comic it just it just feels like geary and greasy in a particular way like it feels like a kind of a color register that could only be done by a mistake it's it's an amazing feeling that they've harnessed so specifically it's that the start of transmission it's the sci-fi world that the transmission by joy division summons and you taken to its logical conclusion dark ages is fantastic lost is tragic but the day everything became nothing is the one that really sticks with me again this is not descriptions of you know specifics about flying cars or whatever this to me is one of the great pieces of and they, they have a few like this but i don't want to go into too much detail because god knows there's other people on this podcast but the day everything became nothing i was standing underneath the street light wishing i had a cigarette i can't recall something unusual about it there was something in the air the skies had clouded over i wasn't aware i was too bored to care no thunder roared no lightning cracked no missiles rained from the snide sky this was no sneak attack there was just suddenly this awful lack things had changed that's for sure now that is it's so evocative like that feeling of like this is i remember listening to this when i was a kid and thinking oh that's what fascism is you know it is murdering all these people it is that but that feeling of something and it's not a coincidence that you can feel this that feeling of something go of a light going out of something changing imperceptibly in the atmosphere and it, you were part of the pe- people letting it happen ostensibly because you can't put your finger on it but you don't know the day everything became nothing you couldn't put your finger about what had gone wrong the alleys were still dirty the garbage still smelled there was no panic in the streets just a lot of grief in people's faces and their eyes a mixture of horror and total surprise there was no apocalypse no one heard a voice from the sky there was no miracles at the 7 no one screamed no one even asked why it was just like somehow everything had quietly died. So let it die. Again, putting into word this this feeling of, you know, so this is, even though it mentions the 7-Eleven, we're still in kind of a heady area here when it comes to that world, that, that dystopic reality. It's still kind of potentially in the world of metaphor or whatever. It's still, you know, it still feels very macro in a way. You know, it, it's it's, but again, it's so atmospheric. Like the like the the hammering it's doing. By the way, this song, this song specifically, the day everything became nothing, maybe the best live version of any song. I know I keep saying it's the best. I listen to a lot of music. I have to reassure you, but I love No Means No so much. It's silly of me to try to talk about it for even fifteen minutes, but it's the end of everything became nothing that really hammers home how good Rob Wright is at putting very strange, very specific sci-fi stories in a song. I can't recall much of what happened next. I was on the way to visit this woman I knew. All we had in common was good sex, and now I couldn't even remember her address. A group of us, just strangers. Remember, this is being delivered over this incredible, super complicated, ultra-rhythmic, ultra-driving post-punk thing. It's colossal. People are screaming it. It's unbelievable and these are the lyrics this is what's being delivered a group of us just strangers got together and we formed a committee to discuss the problem we talked about things like assured mutual destruction and emotional responsibility 
Again, just uncomfortable, weird, great. I couldn't remember my name, so I call myself Bob. It's weird being a Bob, but I'll get used to it. I guess I'll fucking have to. Like, that's how to end a song. And that is so indicative of no means. Like, that's that atmosphere. It is so difficult to find something, again, the opposite end of steampunk, the opposite end of even rap when people, you know, talk about very specific, like Cool Keith imagining the fucking spaceship he drives to the club in or whatever. This is just a vibration. This is like seeing somebody figure out how to speak common sea into a song. Speak that like threads into existence over a bassline, drums, and guitar while they support the sonic. It's amazing. I love it so much. And like anybody talking about their favorite band, I'm not sure how this good this has been, but I really think you should listen to them. My name is Sean. My podcast is called All Units. I'm sorry this went on so long. Hello, it's me again. Just to very briefly say, the next voice you'll be hearing is Darren Anderson, uh, author of the book Imaginary Cities. Um, following that, you will be hearing um, Fatima Vieira from the University of Porto. There are quite a few songs about the yearning for Utopia or Paradise, the Big Rock Candy Mountain springs to mind, but very few about what might happen if we actually arrived at such a place and the inevitable crushing disappointment that we would feel. Talking Heads made an album in 1979 with Brian Eno called Fear of Music and I've always been a fan of Talking Heads as long as I can remember for aesthetic reasons. I was brought up by uh, sort of hippie radicals and everyone I knew and everyone in my family, male or female or otherwise, had long hair and dressed in kind of caftans. And I suppose to rebel against that, um, I really wanted to be like David Byrne. I seen, I think it was in the Churchill or there was a videotape that we made where we me and my sister would just tape things off top of the pops in the chart show and stuff. And there was a video for, it was either Once in a Lifetime or Road to Nowhere. And David Byrne was wearing a suit. And I just thought he was the coolest character. And my way of rebelling against my family, which every kid tends to do, was um, to want to have short hair and wear a suit and look like a, like a complete nerd. But there was a real subversive element to that. And he was a kind of really original character and, and still is. Um, I love Talking Heads music. But I love the... You now, the music's fun for a start, but there seems to be some kind of intellectual backing to it without a great deal of pretentiousness. You know, there's a lot of humour. I always think it's humour... And David Byrne's whole outlook is somewhere between Andy Warhol and Andy Kaufman. And there's a song in Fear of Music that I, I came to love many years later. I was initially attracted to it because it's just melodically very, very beautiful and melancholic. It's a song called Heaven. And gradually as I listened to it more and more, and I think it was a version on, on Stop Making Sense, the, the live film that they made. 
I started realizing that the lyrics were wonderful, that they had this amazing ambiguity to them, where David Byrne was imagining what it would be like to, you know, arrive in heaven and have your kind of dreams realized. And heaven takes a bar because he's a New Yorker. Heaven takes the the form of a of a bar where your favorite song is always playing and it plays over and over again, and everybody leaves at the same time, so you're not missing anything. And it's kind of like the realization of all our desires about glamour and hedonism, but there's something monstrous about that. There's something inhuman about perfection and it always makes me think of Dante's Divine Comedy where everyone reads the Inferno because it's got all the good stuff it's got all these horrific very iconic and memorable scenes of torture and retribution but they also read Inferno because we can relate to the characters in it. We can all relate to people that have gone to hell and deserve to be in hell because we all have that element. And that element is human frailty and failing and imperfection. And maybe that is actually what makes us human. Jurei ter por companheira Grandola a tua vontade Grandola a tua vontade Jurei ter por companheira Assombrando uma zinheira Que já não sabia In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will also be singing about the dark times. Well, these are not the words of the song that we have just listened to. You may have recognized the words of Bertolt Brecht, taken from the short poem titled Motu, which he added to his Swedenborg poems when he was writing about Germany in the late 1930s. This idea that there will always be singing even in the dark times, and that this singing will be about the dark times themselves is no doubt the best way of describing protest singing. And this too has happened in Portugal during our dark, dark times that started with the Ditadura Nacional, that is the national dictatorship in 1926, and went through the Estado Novo, that is the new state, an authoritarian regime which was installed in Portugal until the Carnation Revolution in 1974. During these dark times, many protest songs were produced, many protest songs were recorded, were censored because they had powerful lyrics, because it was very difficult to talk softly about the dark times. The song we have just listened to was written by Zeke Afonso, one of the most influential folk and political musicians in Portuguese history, who is still remembered today, even 44 years after the Carnation Revolution. Zeca Afonso wrote many songs about the dark times, songs with powerful titles such as The Vampires, which went like this, They have it all, they have it all, they have it all, 
and do not leave anything behind for us. And because of that, his songs were banned and he lost his job as a high school teacher and was imprisoned by the Portuguese secret police, Pete. And other Portuguese singers sang powerful lyrics too, such as Manuel Freire, who sang a poem by Carlos Oliveira, which expressed this conviction that although they may have it all, they will never be able to take our ideas from us. And the poem went like this. No axe is able to cut off the roots of our thoughts. There is no death to the wind. There is no death. But the song that we have listened to is different. It is a protest song that works through Utopia. And the song is about a small village called Grendula, a village in the south of Portugal, in the Alentejo region, which is described as a tanned village or a swarthy village, if you want. And it was written 10 years before the Carnation Revolution, when Zeca Afonso was invited to sing at the commemoration festivities of a musical society composed of workers. The name of the musical society was the Workers' Fraternity of Grandula, and Zeca Afonso was so moved by the fraternal atmosphere that he wrote the song. The verse form is highly disciplined, and you have a succession of quatrains, each quatrain repeating the identical lines of the previous quatrain, but in, in reverse order. A tentative translation of the words, with no concern for rhyme, but for content only, would read like this. Grendle, swarthy village, land of fraternity. It is the people who commands inside you, O village. Inside you, O village. It is the people who commands land of fraternity. Grendle, swarthy village. Around every corner, friend. On every face, equality. Grendle, swarthy village. Land of fraternity, land of fraternity, grandless worthy village. On every face equality, it is the people who commands under the shade of a home oak that has forgotten its own age. I swore to take your will, Grendler, to be my companion. Your will, Grendler, I swore to take to be my companion under the shade of a home oak that had forgotten its own age. So you see that Grendle, this swarthy village, works like a heterotopia in the middle of a country that had sank into darkness. Zeca Fonce was thus chosen not to sing about the dark times, but to inspire by showing a glimpse of hope. There is this fraternity which is as old as the home oak under which the singers sing. And there are also these ancient values of fraternity, of equality, which are only possible because it is the people who commands. The Carnation Revolution happened in April 1974, and one month before, in March, Zeca Afonso sang this song in a concert. And although many of his songs had, had been censored before, it was not the case with Grendler, because it was not recognized by the censors as a protest song. And during that concert, the audience joined Zeca Fonce. They all knew they were all singing about this need to gather all the forces and make the revolution happen. But this is not the end of the story. The conspirators of the Carnation Revolution 
which happened on the 25th of April of 1974, had agreed on two signals that would indicate that everything was going as planned, and these two signals were to be conveyed through the radio under the form of two songs. The first song was a song by Paulo de Carvalho, also a protest singer, and it was the song that Portugal had entered in the Eurovision Song Contest of that year. And ironically, the song's title was E Depois do Adeus, that is, and after the farewell. But the true farewell to the dark times that we went through in my country was announced at 12.20, when the Portuguese radio station Radio Renascencia broadcasted Grandula Vila Morena. And the song is still sang today. It is like a, a national anthem after the Carnation Revolution. And every year, on the 25th of April, the song is sang during the official festivities. On that day, the Portuguese go to the streets. And to me, it is the most utopian of all the Portuguese songs. A bright song written in the dark times that still works for our times. And that, I would say, as our times are getting darker, works as a reminder that fraternity is the secret and equality the ideal. Grandula Vila Morena Terra da Fraternidade O povo é quem mais ordena Dentro de ti a cidade Dentro de ti a cidade O povo é quem mais ordena Terra da fraternidade Grandula vida morena Em cada esquina um amigo Em cada rosto igualdade Grandola Vila Morena Terra da fraternidade Terra da fraternidade Grandola Vila Morena 